Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. You're listening to Think Sustainability. And we're going to start the show today with something that makes you cry. Onions. Tony Abbott has talked about why he bit into a raw onion last week. Now, if you don't remember, about two years ago, Australian Prime Minister at the time, Tony Abbott, went viral on the internet. And not because of his policies, not because of some political scandal, but because he took a big old bite into an uncooked, still covered in skin onion. vision of the Prime Minister eating the vegetable, complete with skin, has been shown in Australia and abroad. People went nutso over this. Pretty much every online publication in the country covered the story. It even caught the attention of American talk show host John Oliver. I will thank Australia right now. I don't know what the point of Tony Abbott was, but it was fun while it lasted. People began cramming Twitter with the hashtag put out your onions, where people would take pictures of a bag of onions sitting out the front of their house. And this is something that artist Ella Barclay remembers pretty well. Like, I remember when Tony Abbott ate the onion, a lot of people were like, I'm just leaving this here. You know, are you familiar? Have you had that where someone goes, I'm just going to leave this here? And it's usually like... Someone being like, this is what I have to say. Oh my God, look at this. Totally. And it's like either someone doing a weird dance or some kind of like an image that is kind of giving something away or revealing something or is just a bit too much. Ella took this idea to the next level in a performance lecture she ran called Leave This Here, talking about how in the internet age, we can latch on to something as stupid as Tony Abbott eating an onion, post it up and say, I'm just going to leave this here, as if we're sending our own little jab Tony Abbott's way. But Ella then began to think when we say, I'll just leave this here, we were in fact doing the complete opposite. The irony is, I suppose, with saying I'm just going to leave this here is you're sort of not leaving this here. What you're doing when you're posting that image is you're kind of posting it in a semi-public wall where the data for that image is being housed somewhere we don't know, kind of, it's somewhere off-site being etched into a real hard drive in real space somewhere. Say you jump on Twitter. You pop the hashtag put out your onions into the search bar. You can jump back in time to see how many people posted that hashtag or uploaded photos of a bunch of onions out the front of their house. And if you scroll back far enough, you could probably see the first ever put out your onions post. So if you think about it, your post isn't just left here. It's jumping through millions of networks, millions of cables, routers, bouncing around the globe. And although it seems that the home of these posts is in this ephemeral space we call the internet, it technically still has a home, somewhere in a bunch of hardware. And what we'll be looking at today is how that hardware that helps you post and share your photos on Facebook, that connects you to strangers on Tinder, that same hardware that stores some of your deepest, darkest secrets, could be harming the planet. That's coming up next on Think Sustainability. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? 
This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. Tune in Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Tuesday evening at 6.30. You can also listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Welcome back. Today, the carbon footprint of data. Now, on paper, that might sound like a contradiction. How can a photo I post to Facebook be affecting the health of the planet? Well, it's not the post itself that's doing the harm. It's the technology that makes it possible. And it's these technology that live in places known as data centres. They're an environment that's not necessarily built for humans, and that's always kind of weird when you're in those sorts of places. A data centre is just a fancy term for a place where you store IT equipment. So it could be server equipment, storage equipment, powers and racks and so forth. But yeah, nothing exciting about a data centre. You've seen one, you've seen them all. So. <laughs> This is Rodney Getter. He's a senior analyst at a place called Telsite, where they publish about business markets and telecoms. And although they're not a holiday destination of choice, when you are planning your next holiday online, scrolling through tour deals, setting up details with the travel agent, all that information flows through a data centre. But these data centres play a much bigger role than just that. All of our Facebook records all of the scientific data that's being collected. This is Tanya Notley. She works in the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. All of the weather balloon information that's being collected, historical records, books, films, it's this kind of broad encompassing term. Data centres don't only move all this stuff from point A to point B, they also store a crapload of information. You've probably backed up your computer to some sort of cloud. Essentially, that means you've backed up that information to a data centre. Businesses, charities, government agencies and industry do that too. But they also rely on data centres for something else, to securely share information. Data centres are the info hotspots of today. But they take a huge amount of energy to run. In the Sydney area, we have around 65 data centre locations. Now, these buildings aren't like your typical office space. What you'll find on one level is all the hardware doing its job, storing, transmitting data. Then on the next level up, you won't find people or sets of cables. Instead, you'll find air conditioning units, and a lot of them. Then next level up, you'll see more hardware, and above that, more air conditioning units. It goes on. These in-between levels of aircon run around-the-clock cold air that keeps the data centre hardware from getting too hot. Because that's what computers do when they're running at full capacity. They get hot. To put this in perspective for you, last year in the United States alone, Data storage facilities used 70 billion kilowatts of electricity. Think of, um, you know, the 50-watt light bulb sort of thing, like so on a massive scale. Which is around 3% of the US's total power consumption. Another concern is not only do these hardware and cooling technology use so much energy to run, 
but it's also the idea that people don't even know all of this is happening. When we think of the cloud, we see it as just that, some weightless formation floating around, storing our data, not doing any harm. And Tanya Notley from Western Sydney University says we've been made to think that way. I think that's been an intention as well on the part of industry for us to forget that, for us to, you know, forget my data or sitting in different places around the world and what does that mean and my dad is using electricity and my dad is using machines i think we're meant to forget that that's been the whole promise of the cloud you know this ephemeral thing but the fact is clouds can only exist because of data centers so it always comes down to data being on an, on a machine and the internet running off machines so why do you think they want us to forget that well i think it makes us feel secure that there's just information that's just there when we want it. But also, you know, there's the fact that I guess it's easier for those companies if we just keep buying into cloud services and using them more and more rather than thinking about, you know, the material consequences of what we're doing. And if we're buying into the cloud, are you and me ultimately the ones responsible for all of this? This is something I wanted to ask Rodney from Telest. So if I want to be on the network and my stuff is in the cloud, I'm kind of inevitably engaging in the fact that these data centers need all this energy to be used and all this electricity generated to store my stuff. Like I'm contributing to that. You are, yes. The short answer is yes. As a, as a consumer of these services, we're sort of contributing to the fact that data centers use a lot of energy. Rodney thinks data centres are a necessary evil in a way. Well, not evil, but he says they're not great environmentally. But they're also more efficient than everyone having a bunch of hardware and computer equipment at home that they manage themselves. Because that would just be too difficult to look after. But he also thinks we haven't yet unlocked the green potential of data centres. You think of a data centre like a car, it's, you can get greener, but it's probably never going to be 100% green, right? So even if we, with cars we have a transition from uh, petrol to electric, which is great, but it still takes power and energy and materials to make electric motors. So it's just one of those things where we'll probably never get to 100% green, a car or a data centre, but we can certainly get a lot closer than where we are today. So where are we today? Globally, we're looking at tackling this issue in three ways. One, changing the technology to cool data centres. Two, where we build them. And three, what data we should or shouldn't be storing moving forward. I'll be covering these three points, but first, we're going to start by looking at cooling technology. So before when we were talking about how your typical data centre is laid out, one level aircon, one level hardware... This isn't what every data centre looks like, and there's actually a push to find other ways to lay them out. Rather than using fan-forced aircons like the one you might have in your home, you can also use something called a vapour cooler, which could ideally recirculate the heat generated by the hardware, vaporise it, and then use that to cool the data centre. However, the cooling tech has a lot to do with how the centre is powered. Typically, they're attached to the electrical grid with a diesel-powered backup, which isn't the most environmentally friendly thing. This is where Rodney thinks renewables come into play. In terms of energy sources into the data centre, you've got solar, which is another energy source. You could use other renewables like wind, even hydro, whatever the case may be. So that's why a lot of data centres are actually placed near rivers and, and, and so forth. They can use uh, 
running water as electricity. But a full shift to renewables isn't so easy. Power is so important to a data centre that it's not that easy to transfer completely to renewable energies, but it certainly is happening. It just needs to be something that's engineered from the ground up to happen. So it's not that easy to retrofit an existing, say, city data centre to become renewable you know, 100%. These sort of data centres would be more dependent on the renewable energy being sourced from the supplier, right? So if the supplier can source renewable energy then feed it through the traditional mains power, then that's the best step they can make. But there is another way we can think about this, and that's if we turn the cooling idea on its head. What if we cut out the idea of air conditioners and didn't focus on these centres being cool, but instead letting them run hot? Well, this takes us to part two. Where should these data centres go? Here's Tanya. Microsoft have developed a model for sending data centers underwater. So they've already created a a small model and successfully sent that into the ocean, again, meaning that it would need uh, no cooling. In Singapore, they have a lot of data centers. They've been trialing something called a tropical data center, which where they're basically uh, trying to run data centers at much higher temperatures than we normally would. So a lot less cooling would be needed running them at higher temperatures. Mm, That's right. So basically the reason that you need to keep computers cool is because they've been made, they've only been made to work under certain temperatures. Um, So there have been a lot of innovations in the development of all the various components of a server to allow them to operate under much hotter temperatures without there being any risk or negative impact. So it means for data centres to run at a a hotter temperature that people need to have the right equipment, the right machines. By designing the hardware to run hotter, not only does it cut out the need for things like aircon, but it means we could use ambient temperature levels, meaning the room temperature, which doesn't require any energy to run. Singapore is a great place to trial these tropical data centres, given they sit along the humidity of the equator. But this could go a step further, and we could build them into other natural locations, from old unused mine sites that are situated underground, the cool ambient air would cut out that cooling cost, to underwater locations. But Tanya says rethinking where we build them will also pull data centres out of the city, which a lot of them currently live in. There's real reasons to want to get the data centres out of the city besides the expensive real estate. We have the issue of microclimates in cities, in large cities, and definitely I think data centres can contribute to that. And when you say microclimate, you mean if there are all these data centres within a CBD area, there's all these air cons that are trying to keep them cool, it's kind of like raising a temperature within that city area. That's right. I mean, I'd love for us to have the information where we could say in Sydney, data centres use X amount of the electricity in Sydney. I think that would be really interesting. I think it would be higher than 2 or 4% just for the Sydney area. And I think it would be really interesting to look again at that data, just sort of the CBD area, how much energy use is going to data centres there. So I think, you know, if we have more information, we could start asking important questions. The one thing that really stuck out to me when I was talking to Tanya was, why, if we have all these data centres storing and processing all those little bits and bobs of our lives, why don't we have access to the stats and data on how much power in Sydney is sucked up by these data centres? 
This ultimately comes down to the fact that there are those who want access to our data, our Facebook records, personal details, but won't give us access to theirs. And that's because to them, our data is a commodity. And this brings us to point three: What data should we be storing from this point forward? Here's artist Ella Barclay again. You know, around '98, '99, I had like there were heaps of different email companies like around the era. I think when Hotmail first sold to Microsoft in 1997, I joined this like email account called Chickmail. It was like I was like Ella at Chickmail.com. And then, you know, just one day, it was kind of I'd sort of stopped using it. It was maybe about maybe about 2004 or something. It just it's gone. Like it's all gone. All the emails have gone. And, you know, whatever. But it does lead us to believe that obviously, you know, large companies like Google, etc., on some level as a financial transactions that we've made with them to store our data, but at the same time, sort of, you know, they're custodians of it and we don't necessarily know where it is, you know. And so, I don't know, we do, I think it is kind of interesting that we sort of pay for the privilege of someone else to look after all of the information that kind of defines who we are. The point of this episode is not to say, don't use the internet, don't use Facebook, blah, blah, blah. It's to say, you can take a green bag to the supermarket instead of taking a plastic bag home. You can start a compost at home so you don't throw orange skins into the waste bin. But to detox from data seems near impossible. But remember, the next time you send a text or you post a photo to Facebook, the next time you write your details online, it's not just floating away. It's going into something. It's going into something that could affect the planet. That's all we have time for on Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. You can jump on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Just put in Think Sustainability. Also, thanks to Miles Herbert, who helped me wrap my head around this episode. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time. Coffee,